Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here on the Smart Investing Show. Gosh, we got so many things to cover today. Uh, we are going to be talking about at the beginning of the show, the volatility of stocks. <laughs> that did happen this past week. Also talk about the CPI and the PPI, which is the Consumer Price Index and Producer Price Index. Very important numbers because next week is when the Fed meets, are going to raise rates or not. This is some of the data that they look at. And then also to gas prices, we'll talk about behind the scenes what is going on with gas prices. And with me is Chase. Hey, Chase. Hey there. Good to be here. And uh, where's the vest? You know, no vest today. It's uh, the weekend. <laughs> it's a sweatshirt, nice hoodie. You know, I feel like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and, and actually, we'll give a plug for your foundation because that's what uh, the sweatshirt is. Yeah, and the Fighters Fight Foundation. Nice, comfortable sweatshirt on this cool morning. It's supposed to be 75 today, though, so that's yes. going to be kind of nice. I'm looking forward to sitting out by my pool and reading my Barron's magazine. <laughs> and. Next week, we go back to the rain, too, yeah, so that'll no, be cool. But anyways, we'll not today. a weather talk show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you want to join the show, phone number here, 833-288-0973. Again, 833-288-0973. But I know, as you said, we got a lot to talk about before we go to the calls there. And I do want to tell people because uh, it's kind of be being known now. Like People see me in a suit. They know I wear a suit all the time. Your thing has been for now years, you don't wear a suit, you wear a vest. And people start to kind of recognize you by wearing the vest. So that's if they see you on TV, like, yeah, he always does wear a vest. I mean, best you, guy. Your best guy. You don't wear a suit coat unless, well, maybe at my wedding you will. I yeah, know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wore one at my wedding, but yeah. The wore, jacket just, I feel like I'm like in a straight jacket and I'm contained and I'm like, I just want to break free. You you're, you're a vest guy. So, I mean, you might see Chase on the beach uh, in his vest. Who knows? Hey. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on and talk about uh, what's going on here. The, the volatility of stocks, and it, it just amazes me how people believe that stocks are too risky. And this is a great, great time to talk about this and how real estate is much safer. Looking back nearly 50 years, the truth is stocks have more volatility than real estate. Yes, that, that is true. But the return on stocks Far, I mean, far outperform real estate using a nationwide real estate index versus the S&P 500 from 1975 to 2022, a $100 investment. And, and again, I know you can't buy real estate for $100, but they're using this as an indicator. A $100 investment in U.S. real estate would be up about nine times to 928. You're thinking, well, that's a pretty good return. That's, I'd, I'd be very happy with that. Compare this to $100 invested in the S&P 500. From 1975 to 2022, that would have grown to $19,351. From 1990 to 2006, there was a period known as the Great Moderation, where real estate outperformed the S&P 500, and that's over now. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely over. But uh, looking back on history and realizing how much real estate has increased because of COVID, I mean, I, I do begin to wonder if we could be in for a long-term period of slowly increasing real estate and after inflation, perhaps a negative return. People do tend to look at the recent history, which can fool one to making poor investment decisions. People think just because something went up in the past, 
it'll continue to do the same thing going forward, but they do not realize that great advancements can lead to moderation for years to come. Why do people do so poorly in stocks? They confuse the volatility with risk, and many times during a short-term decline in equities, well, they will head for the exits and miss the great long-term returns that good, solid equities can provide those investors. And that's what's going on right now, Chase. I mean, we got the banking situation. Yes, we had uh, three banks fail. People are like, oh, I'm getting out of stocks. Stocks are too risky. And they're missing the best returns. And actually today on the front page of Barron's, what's it say? Buy the big banks. Yep. That's what we're doing. I mean, that, that's what you do. You don't run to the exits. And I always, I don't like when people say this. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell now, and you know what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna sell now and come back when things are better. What that means is I am selling low and buying high. Yeah, and, and it's like they think like, oh, I'm just gonna like I just can't handle this volatility right now. Right. Well, if you can't handle volatility now, what's gonna change in six months? Or there's always gonna be volatility. <laughs> like, that just tells me you're not gonna do well in stocks, and just you're not gonna do well investing. Period. Yes. And it, yeah. it's just a awful decision that people make and we always have this saying that investing is simple but it's not easy now what does that mean yeah it's pretty darn simple to go out and buy a stock now right and even taking it one step further the the concept of investing buying a good company at a low price yeah that makes sense yeah simple concept that part that is not easy or i guess there's two parts that are not easy is number one the research you have to make sure you're getting a good business <laughs> at a good price and number two, it's not easy to go through these difficult times. It is hard to kind of watch the portfolios go up and down. But that's why if you take that longer term view, two to three years down the road rather than two to three days, it does kind of help ease some of that pressure. But people get so fixated on it and they make the worst decisions during these periods. I, I truly believe that it's during these periods that the most money is made. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I learned that 20 years ago that you make most of your money during a bear market. But people want to miss the bear market, and people, and we tell people of a seven-year period, you are gonna have a couple losing years. That's gonna happen. You're gonna have losing quarters, losing months. That's gonna happen. But it's the volatility. It is not really a loss because you don't sell it. It's just what somebody else sold at, and that's the price they got. Doesn't mean you have to do that. And the same thing can happen with real estate. But the difference is equities do so so much better. But people refuse to ride the course. They think this is the last time it's going to be over. And I, I've now gone through after this now probably, what, 21 corrections in my 40-plus years of doing this. And every single time, this is the only thing I can say, every single time had the same result. It was higher eh, a, year or two, a year or two later, uh, many times much less than that. So why? Why do you sell when things are low? Ask yourself that question because you're afraid maybe losing more, which you may. Oh, I should have sold back then. Yep, maybe you should have. But look down the road, 12, 24 months. Gosh, I'm glad he didn't sell. And the funny thing is when we tell people, it's like, hey, you know, would you be happy with an 8, 10, maybe 12% return average? Yeah, that'd be great. No, oh, I got to get out. You know, the right. things are terrible. Well, if you can time it, that, that tells me you're not expecting a 10% return. That tells me you're going for a 30, 40% return right. <laughs> because you think you're going to be able to time the bottom and then the upswing is going to be a 50%. There's no way to do that. Right. And again, we're very upfront. We tell people, we're not trying, we're not market timers. I'm not trying to be a hedge fund and short and do all these crazy things and end up, you know, charging our clients all this money and then end up being very risky. That's how you don't make money in the long term by right. trying to do just silly things. And I did want to say as well with the real estate side of the equation is I, I, I got to, I'm not going to knock the, the study necessarily, right. but I, I can see where some people might be saying, well, yeah, but you know, there is the cost to rent. 
Right. And that is true. So that doesn't factor that into the equation. But I will say, I was looking at a my house that I rent currently mm-hmm. versus what it would cost me by to the way, buy it. We both rent, by the way. Both okay. rent. What it would cost me to buy it. And in terms of cash flow, my cash flow would be about a few thousand dollars less every single month. Like, yeah, but you're putting it into the house. But my counterpoint is, yeah, but now that money is not going into investments. Right. So, again, that's where it looks at what is the cash flow. And I, I think there will be a time where, where real estate does make more sense. And if you can get closer to rent and the cash flow on that house being closer, yeah, you can make that argument. But right now, I'm just losing too much cash flow by buying and not being able to invest. I mean, you talk about not investing in a 401k, a Roth IRA, mm-hmm. you're missing huge tax benefits as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing too with, with real estate, and again, there, there are times that people should buy a house. We've talked about for you, you wanna raise a family, you probably do wanna buy a house so you can stay in that school district and so forth. But the other thing too with real estate is that you had to come up with a down payment. Yep. And that's 20%, so a million dollar home, you've gotta come up with $200,000. Well, that $200,000 now is dead money because of the fact that you can't invest that money. Now you do have the benefits of leveraging because now if the house goes up 10%, it's only really, well, you know, over time, it's really based on your 200,000 investment plus the payments. So there are some benefits, but the point that I will try to get across to people, we're not saying don't buy a house, don't yeah, buy a house. Yeah. We're saying that investing is good, stay the course. You'll get those big returns over a 20, 30 years. And I get so excited, like, like my other son Nash, who's what, 20. I mean, he's putting away money. Uh, Christina's son, Ethan, he's been away money. I mean, these young kids that are 20, 21 years old, they have no idea what that money's going to be worth. When they're, it's going to be worth millions of dollars because oh, yeah. they're on the right track. And just, you know, I, I'm going to say you got to keep on track because I, I could be around for 30 more years. Then, like, you have to help them through that that time frame. But it's just get investing. And I, I love to see young, young people invest and get started. Yeah, no, it, it's important. And uh, I did. I don't know if we want to talk about it now, but I, I did kind of want to obviously talk about the Silicon Valley bank sure, situation. We can that. Yeah. I, I just, obviously, it's been a, a week now since our last show where it was kind of fresh news last week, but, you know, you kind of started to get more information. We're, we're talking and, you know, this may be a little more political than, than investing, but right. <laughs> when we look at the Silicon Valley bank situation, I think it was a huge mistake to, to actually help those people that didn't have insured deposits. I think it does create a very dangerous situation of saying, oh yeah, no, all deposits, all deposits shouldn't be safe. Capitalism, we need failure. Yes. And right now, just to let these people off the hook, and I'm gonna say it's kind of funny as well. It's like, oh no, we're we're going after the billionaires. Well, guess who banks at Silicon (laughs) Valley Bank? (laughs) It's just just crazy to me. And I I think there were some things they could have done to help small businesses. But again, the billionaires that lost $50 million there, why in the heck would you have $50 million in a risky bank? That's more of an investment to me. Than a, than a cash account. Yeah, and and, and you wouldn't need to, because there are smaller businesses that might have payroll that is $500,000, million. Yeah, they, they might need to have it in there. So maybe raise it to a higher level. And 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 this is the second time this year, you know what I'm gonna say? I'm gonna agree with Elizabeth Warren on something, because she came out saying that maybe there should be, because your average person doesn't need yeah. more than $250,000 in, in, you know, insured. But a business does, because if you're like a small business, you have a payroll for, 30, 40 people, that's probably maybe a million dollars. You've got to have that in the bank to, to make, meet payroll. Yep. So maybe there should be a higher limit for businesses. And the other thing that we both agreed on is just like, 
banks should be boring, yep. which he said. And that was very important. That, yeah, banks are not there to speculate and do all these crazy things like Silicon Bank did. That, that That's why they had problems. Yeah, and, and these big banks don't want to buy their assets because they're crap assets. Yeah, I toxic. Mean, yeah, they're, they're not yeah. good loans. And I, I think that's why I still feel so comfortable in the financial world right. is I, I, the financial system is not broken. People oh, think this is, again, a Lehman moment. I don't think this is a Lehman moment. I, I think this is a very isolated occurrence that, that happened with these high-risk banks. And I, I still continue to believe there's going to be other high-risk banks. And I do think there could be some unfortunate situations where there are bank runs on some smaller banks as mm -hmm. well. That is going to be difficult. Um, you know, obviously, First Republic's been in the news a lot, and I think they could potentially sell. I, I know they said that's an unlikely situation, but if there is a continued bank run on them, they may have to sell. But I think they actually have good loans, where Silicon Valley had terrible loans. So it, it's, I think, just looking at it on a case-by-case -case basis is going to be uh, very important. And I think the big banks, again, I, I, I think they're extremely safe. And they've actually seen deposits come into them, so I, I oh, think yeah. they're going to have no problems. Yeah, what was it? Uh, I think B of A said $15 billion last, last weekend or something. I'm not sure what J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and so forth. Um, but, but the other thing, too, is that you, you just have to kind of step back. And, and, and the other thing the bank did, too, was they kind of had an agreement, like, we're going to loan you this money you know, for this high risk venture that you're doing, but you got to kind of put your other money here with us as well, yeah. which is a banking relationship. But they did so many of those risky loans, we'll call it, that their deposits were risky because they're all based on these startup type companies where when things slow down, they need money. Yep. So that's the other thing too, is, is, is banks need to, this has never come up before, never even thought about it. Actually, that's not true. Back in the oil uh, bust, uh, in Texas, they had some banks that all their customers at the banks were oil yeah. people. And when oil went down, everybody's losing money. So there should be a thing maybe that banks should have a diversified deposit base mm -hmm. that, yes, I want that relationship with you, but I can't have more than 25% of my business come from st uh, tech startup companies or from oil companies. You, you should diversify. And that's, that's a business decision. That, that was a poor move by that, that bank. Yeah. And, and the thing that, uh, again, I, I, people might be surprised by this, but, but I'm for regulation. Yeah. I'm just not for stupid regulation. There we go. And, and I, I think a lot of times people go overboard and say, you see, we need to regulate more. And it's like, about smart regulation. We don't just need to add regulation, right. add regulation. And I, I'm going to be a little perturbed if they add more regulation to the big banks. I, I don't think you need more regulation. <laughs> no, on, no. There's no issues there. Right, right. And the thing is that that also kind of is frustrating is it seems like the big banks and the other banks are going to have to pay for essentially Silicon Valley banks' failure, signature banks' mm -hmm. failure. I, I think that is wrong as well. And, and the other thing too is that is there a need for small banks? Because small banks used to be nice because you go in there, you'd meet the manager, you know people, you almost would know the president. I mean, it was a small commercial, or, or not commercial, but community bank that you would go to and you felt together with them. Now, because of all banking being done on your phone, internet, everything else, you don't have that relationships. Why do we need a small community bank? Because you don't see those people anymore. You don't go in there. Everything is done on online now, pretty much. I, I'm still the guy, and I've not done it recently. I used to go in every month in my bank, just kind of say hello and do a withdrawal or something. Um, but I don't even do that anymore. You just don't need to do it. So why do we have community banks? that they, They're really losing a big benefit of that, that relationship of face-to-face -face meeting with people where 
everyone's the same. It's just like, what are you going to pay me? What are you going to do? How good are your transactions? Yeah, you know? so, I, I, I know. And, and the crazy thing as well is you kind of talk about the digitization of it yeah. is that's what's causing a lot of the problems as well. But before when you had bank runs, <laughs> right. get this, you had to get in the car, drive to the bank <laughs> and ask for your money back. Now you go on the app and it's, it's done like that. You know, and I saw some pictures of, of, of that where people are outside the Silicon Bank like, do you not have a phone? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I guess maybe they couldn't access the accounts. I'm going to the bank. Yeah, yeah, and I, I didn't know I, it was. I, uh, probably a lot of them didn't even know where the bank was. <laughs> yeah, that could be. I didn't even know they had branches. Yeah, so, but um, it it is something that I, I think we will see changes in the banking system, um, and 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 it is kind of funny too because back in 2008, get rid of the big banks, get rid of the big banks. Now, like, oh, thank God we have the big banks. You know, I mean, it's just something that people many times don't understand what the benefits of a big bank is. And again, you talk about a good point. Yes, they need to be regulated to a certain degree, but not, I mean, what worries me, if you insure all the banks, what that worries me is that perhaps you're getting closer to a nationalized banking system, mm -hmm. which we don't want the banks nationalized because we don't want the government running them. We know how bad the government is. So, uh, but that's just kind of the direction we're going. So we'll see what develops out. Uh, I'm on KSI uh, tomorrow morning, talk about it more. Uh, and, and we're, we're on top of that to see what happens. But again, I, I, we're very safe with the, the banks. The whole banking industry is pretty safe. And I, I'm still confident. And, you know, it, it has hurt our portfolio a little bit as tech has done well over the last week. Mm -hmm. We've been stepping in and buying banks. Yep. And people th might think we're crazy, but I, I think there's a lot of, as Baron said, buy the big banks. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you got to understand you're not going to buy at the absolute bottom, but... I think there's a lot of great opportunity there in the big banks is, is they're selling off not because of, I think, the right fundamentals. Yeah. They're selling off of, because I just got to sell and get out. And people always shoot first and ask questions later. And then like, why didn't I do well? Eh? You should have asked questions before you shop. Let's move on to the uh, CPI index, the Consumer Price Index. Uh, inflation in the month of February continued its downward trajectory as a CPI increased 6% compared to last year. This was right in line with expectations and comes in lower than the January 6.4% reading and the peak of 9% in June of last year. Many of the normal culprits remained elevated with transportation services up 14.6%. Wow, airfares were up 26.5%. I think that's going to slow down pretty soon. Uh, energy services were up 13.3%. No surprise here. Electricity was up 12.9%. And utility gas services were up 14.3%. And food well, that was up 9.5%. Uh, there were some positives as gasoline was down 2.5%. Citrus fruits were down 1.2%. I love this one. Beef and veal were down 1.4%. And banking was down 5.9%. Uh, major appliances were down 5.9%. And then also, too, we, we looked at used cars. Remember, this was a big one. Big one, up 30% yep. a couple of years ago. <laughs> well, now they're down 13.6%. Televisions also were down 14.8%. And it sounds like a lot of numbers there, but the, the reason I wanted to point this out, or we wanted to point this out, is it is nice to see there are more categories in these reports that are showing a decline. Before, it was like, oh, there's one in the, the negative column. Right. Now they're starting to actually be more different categories in that decline. Now, looking at core inflation, which backs out food and entry, it actually came in at 5.5%. But the thing you got to look at here is a heavy weight in the report was shelter costs. That was up 8.1%. And if those were backed out from the core inflation, it would have been 4%. So we're starting to kind of see a lot of other areas slow down and really kind of concentration in different areas lift the CPI, which means if things slow back down in shelter, 
that could bring down the whole CPI. And, and the thing that I look at here is we remain very optimistic over this trajectory because, again, we look at the shelter index. It actually really lags real-time data as leases, it takes about 12 months for those to come through because landlords, again, they typically renew those every 12 months, which means current price dynamics won't be reflected in new contracts for a year. So, I mean, you got to think about there's people that signed a lease, we'll call it 11 months ago, where they're locked in now for only one month, but people just signed a lease six months ago where they're still locked in for another six months. So it's kind of this rolling data and we know home prices have started to come down. We know rents have started to come down. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the shelter index cool going forward. And again, we talked, I believe it was last week that uh, we are seeing rents throughout the country drop uh, down uh, at, at, at a good pace. But you're right in this report, they don't come up until 12 months later. So the report does lag, which tells us, and this is why you know people, oh, inflation's gone up. We look at what's going on down the road. We, we analyze the data and saying, here's another factor with this rent situation that's going to be lower 12 months from now. And it'll probably start being lower a little bit each time yep. uh, over the next few months. So by the end of the year, we should not have an inflation problem. And by that, I mean inflation could be at 3 or 4% yep. by the end of this year, maybe even lower. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But, but one thing I did want to pull out was televisions. Down fourteen point eight percent. I remember you used to get a big screen TV. It was like five grand. Yeah. Now you get. I I think it's gonna be where they're gonna give the TVs I away sh- because now you get a big TV. I think for like a decent one for what was it four or five hundred dollars for a fifty inch, sixty inch TV. Uh, yeah. I mean it's it's crazy. I haven't gone shopping for a TV in a while. I'm pretty set, but. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great. It's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty easy to upgrade a TV now because it's only a few hundred bucks. Yeah, and I did like that. Some food was down. What, what the, the beef and veal were down. Uh, and those are two big factors, beef and veal. I, I love both. Yeah, so, yeah. No, absolutely. And here's a big change, too. And, and this is something else we look at because producer price index, uh, also known as a PPI, came in with a huge surprise, declining. That's right, declining 0.1% in the month of February versus the expectation for 0.3% increase. Now, compared to last February, the PPI grew just 4.6%, which is down from January's annual gain of 5.7% and well off the peak level of 11.7% March 2022. This was the lowest annual increase since March 2021 when it was 4.1%. Now, retail sales did show a 4.4% decline in the month, which could be good news considering it indicates a slowing economy year over year. Retail sales were up 5.4%. And then looking at food services and drinking places, well, they still remain a big destination for consumers' dollars as sales were up 15.3% compared to last February. Non-store retailers also did well up 8.5%. And grocery stores, of course, with the higher food prices, uh, they were up 5.8%. Now, areas of weakness included, again, those electronics and appliance stores, down 2.8%. Motor vehicles and parts dealers were also down 0.2%. And this one will shock some people, but gas stations were down 1.9% due to the decline in gas prices. Now, I continue to believe that the data is showing a softening in the economy. Now, softening is very different than a decline. Right. So, I want to point that out. But it is providing relief to the high inflation levels we experienced last year. And I continue to believe the Fed should hold rates where they are for the time being. But with that said, I still do not believe they should cut rates at all in 2023. And I saw this thing on, I was reading Fox Business this morning, Kathy Wood was like, yeah, the market's showing that the Fed's going to need to cut interest rates by the end of the oh, year. Oh, my gosh. And of course she wants them to cut interest rates. That'll right. help her her crazy investments in, yep. in frothy tech companies. But 
I just I I can't see the need to cut rates. And you may be pointing to the banking issues that are occurring, but I I again think this is going to be resolved here in the next few months. And I think cutting rates would be a huge mistake, and that could kind of create a reacceleration in inflation. And, and I think cutting the rates would not really benefit the the current banking situation that much. And and, and I think next week when when the Fed comes out, I do believe that they're going to raise rates by a quarter of a point. I think that's going to be done. I agree with you. I think they should not do anything until the end of the year. Let's see what happens now that yep. we have this. I, I think that will put us in a great situation towards the end of the year. I think the last six months of the year on the the markets, I think will do very well. And 2024 could be set up to be a good year as well um, if they don't move too quickly. And again, I think the quarter point raise on next week would make sense. And then just let that take effect for a while because we're talking now about things coming down. And the reason why the PPI is so important is that's what is before the consumer. So if their prices are falling, they're going to start becoming more competitive, which will bring down prices even more which will benefit the consumer. But it doesn't happen next week. Yep. It takes time for that to filter on through. It's, again, another positive thing that we're seeing uh, with inflation. And th then people get too emotional, like, oh, you know, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up. No, look at the data. Yeah. The data is telling you that we're on a good path. And it's not going to happen on Monday, like everything's fine. But by the end of the year, I think we're looking at a pretty good inflation rate that everybody's happy with. The economy can pick up and go. And gosh, 2024 is election year. Yeah. I just realized how fast time goes. Well, but I also think too with that that interest rate is, you know, it, you can argue, of course, the the need to cut rates to where they were to help kind of spur demand and so forth. But you can't have rates at two three percent to borrow long term. That 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 right. creates way too many issues in the system. Right now, I think we're at a pretty fair interest rate. Yes, and, and I think it, it it creates enough where there's still that rate can encourage investment because you can still make money by borrowing at, you know, I'm going to say 8%. You can still make money by yeah. borrowing at that rate, but it's not just easy money where everybody can borrow and everybody's going to make money. That creates a lot of issues. Now you have to be a little more selective with how you're going to borrow and invest. That creates a lot, a lot less froth in the economy. I think we're at a very good, what the Fed kind of calls terminal rate, right. where it's a fair rate. I, I think it is a fair rate. But cutting rates, is, I, I think, would be problematic. And the other thing that I think is funny is when you look at these banks, oh, they need to cut rates because of these banks, if they sell off the bonds, they're taking losses and so forth. <laughs> well, what's happened now is with the interest rates pulling back down, well, those bond prices in the portfolios for these banks have now gone back up, yep. kind of already solving the problem. And we're also not going to have, in my opinion, more increasing interest rates. So the banks, what they need is they need more stabilization in interest rates. Yeah. And I was going to say that if, if they can stabilize, the banks can work with it. Uh, we are looking at another sort of bank, we'll call it. And they're in a similar situation, but they said they have plenty of liquidity. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity. It's a, it's a big institution we're looking at. Uh, we're not going to tell our listeners what it is. got to kind of guess. got to kind of figure it out. But, it, but it's just something that will do very well over time, and they can handle that. And that's what you have to look at. And if things stabilize yeah. and rates don't go up, they don't go down, everybody can do well. And and we were fine with, with interest rates at 4 or 5%, 6% before. We should stay at that level yep. because you want to be able to do something when maybe perhaps in 225, 226, we do have another recession. You've got to have something you can help that recession with and to lower rates. But if you're already, if things are bad, oh, let's lower rates again, you're going to boom the economy, you're going to have inflation come back. So let's get rates up. Let's keep them there. 
everybody can make money with rates. What what are mortgages now? Six percent, you know, I think on average. Six to seven. I mean, depending on the points right. and, and I, I think a six percent, six and a half percent mortgage, it's not as good as two or three. Yeah. But you can still make a, a a good argument that yeah, that's a good rate, and I can afford a home. Um, maybe housing prices we talked about will come down somewhat to justify that. But you can have a good economy with a you know mortgage rate at six percent or so. And you create a lot less risk. Yeah. And that's what these low rates did is they created a lot of risk taking and a lot of again froth, which you know as uh, what was the saying Warren Buffett has when when the tide goes out. <laughs> when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> and oh, the first part of it is a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. And then, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. And I think there's a lot of people that were swimming naked. <laughs> swimming naked, yep. And, and now we're seeing like, whoa, that's not a good sight, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, uh, and we probably, uh, we're in for more. Like First Republic, I think uh, 11 banks did loan them. I think it was $30 billion yeah. for 120 days. So that's a positive. We, we need to get through this little storm that, that uh, we're, we're having here. Uh, let's move on because the last thing I want to talk about, and let me give the phone numbers as well. Uh, gosh, I, I, we, we talked quite a bit, a lot of important topics here. Uh, you want to get through for that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Give us a call at 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. We do have a few emails here as well to go over. I got one from Don, uh, another one from... Um, Jason, and then another one from Zach. So we'll try to get to those as well today. But just real quick on the gas prices, I think this was important. Uh, you may not be able to tell by the price of gas at the pump here in California, but oil has dropped down to under $70 a barrel this week. I think I saw it yesterday, $66 a barrel, I think on Friday is where I saw it. Uh, remember last year, about nine months ago, when crude prices hit $122 a barrel? Well, I'm certainly glad those days are gone. The reason for the decline is with the bank failures and also a big sell-off in the international bank Credit Suisse. Some are thinking the economy is slowing down and less oil will be used. It will take a little bit of a time for the big reduction in the price per barrel to flow through the pump at the gas station, but it may not last that long. And, and we also have to remember, we do have that reopening of China's economy, which could increase demand for petroleum. And again, remember all the oil that was taken out of the strategic petroleum reserves uh, made a lot of news there yeah well that must be replaced the talk was they should be buying it back anywhere between 67 dollars a barrel and 72 dollars a barrel let's see if the government follows through with their plan because if they do they would put more upward pressure on the price of oil by creating that demand so i i think as you kind of said it is I don't think we're going to go back to $122 a barrel, right. but I, I think we are going to come off these prices in oil as well. And I really would like to see the government start buying some oil and push that price back up a little bit, because if they don't, the Saudis could say, oh, we're going to start cutting production because oil is too low. So let's have the government, as they said, do something that they said they're going to do and start replacing those reserves at these levels. And I'd say up to 75 to get that price of oil back to 75, because at 75, you, you here in California, uh, you can probably get gas somewhere around four dollars to four fifty a, a gallon, which is not great, but I don't like seeing above five or six. And I have to again point out this is huge for inflation because again, that is a huge input cost to our economy, whether people want to believe it or not. Energy prices, you look at transportation costs, and who uses transportation? A lot of different companies. So having these lower energy prices is a great benefit to the input cost for these businesses, which I think is, again, a benefit to inflation uh, for the, the months to come. All right. Uh, phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 
0-9, excuse me, 7-3. Um, and I'm looking at, uh, let's see, we got Dwayne in San Diego. Uh, Dwayne, can you hold with us a little bit? Because I, I, I do want to go to Harrison because Harrison's going to be talking about where should you put your cash. I think it's a pretty important topic. Uh, so, Dwayne, stay with us for a few minutes while I talk to Harrison. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Hey, guys, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I, I like the topic this, this morning, where should you put your cash? I think a lot of people are thinking that with a banking situation. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you. So yeah, I've gotten a lot of questions about this, given the banking situation and interest rates and everything. Um, so as far as safety goes, most banks out there are either FDIC or NCUA insured. Um, F FDIC is for banks is the um, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. NCUA is for credit unions, um, and that's the National Credit Union Administration. Both are federally insured and give the same type of protection. Um, FDIC limit is $250,000 per person per bank. So if you have a joint account, it's $500,000, and you can split money up over multiple banks to get more protection. So one thing I wanted to point out is most people think that the FDIC is out there to protect us, the consumer or the depositor, but it, its main purpose is out there to protect banks. So banks get in trouble when people lose faith in that bank and pull their money out and if the bank has loaned out too much money and then too many people withdraw their funds the bank could fail so the act of people thinking the bank might fail is what kind of speeds up the process to make that bank fail and so since the fdic now insures those deposits that gives people confidence that their money is safe which prevents them from pulling money out of the bank which in turn keeps the bank from failing so I thought that was kind of an interesting point to, to bring up. But as far as where to keep funds, um, a lot of the large banks out there are still paying basically nothing, even though interest rates are higher. So, you know, the Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of Americas of the world on their savings accounts still are giving like 0.01%, 0.05%, so basically nothing. But there are some smaller banks out there that are still FDIC insured, that have savings rates that are a whole lot more than that. One I like is called CIT Bank. Um, I checked yesterday, and its savings yield rate is 4.4% um, right now. Um, another bank is Synchrony Bank, that's yield is 4% right now. A lot of these banks have been increasing their rates over time as, as the Fed has increased rates, so they've kind of been keeping up with it. Um, now, these are smaller banks, so I would not have more than the FDIC limit, but for emergency savings or liquid funds, it, it pays a whole lot more than the bigger guys. Um, and another alternative that I like is T-bills. So what I like about these is they don't need FDIC insurance because they are backed by the full faith of the federal government. So by definition, they are risk-free. Um, also, the interest that you earn on T-bills is only taxable federally, not on the state side. So unlike savings accounts or CDs that are taxable on both the federal and state side, um, T-bills are just taxable on the federal side. Right now, one month, three months, six months, T-bills all have yields in the 4% range right now. Um, for a while, there was over 5% on the six-month T-bill, but that's kind of come down in the last few days. But the yield is still good. Um, and again, it's better on the tax side. So I like these better than CDs or for people who have more funds than what the FDIC covers. Um, and the other thing I want to make clear is this is, you know, a good place to put cash, whether it's, you know, these FDIC insured high yield savings accounts or, or T-bills. 
but that does not mean that all of your money or your total portfolio necessarily should be going into these things. Everyone needs some amount of cash, and these are good places, but um, you know, I think in the long term, there's still a lot better other places to put long-term investment money, which is, you know, what you guys, Brent and Chase, are talking about. And here's some people who have to think about what is best for them, because one difference is CDs versus T-bills is that T-bills are bought at a discount, so therefore there's no cash flow from interest until until it matures. You get the money back that you actually put in because you bought a discount, whereas a CD can have a monthly cash flow for people on the CD. So there's just different things, and I think it's a little bit easier to get the CD. I, I really like the idea of the CIT bank, the Synchrony Bank, because it's convenient, um, good yield. You don't get the tax benefit for the, the state, but it's just sometimes convenience, depending on how much you're doing. If you're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe it is worth uh, doing the T-bill, but it, it, it comes down to each situation, understand what's best for that individual. And I, I think the big thing you pointed out there as well is, again, these banks are FDIC insured, so I'm not worried about you know losing that money yep. in the bank. I would say, though, I'd be careful of putting like a checking account or something at, at these smaller banks, just in case you need liquidity, because just because yeah. it's FDIC insured, doesn't mean that you'll be able to get the funds out the next right. day. So if you have, a, a, again, the purpose of a checking account is to pay your bills, I, I'd be very cognizant of where I'm putting my checking account or making sure I have other liquid sources that I can get money out of. And here's an interesting question. So you, you, you said your checking account. So it's Friday, and we'll use Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. So they were, they were okay by Monday. So on Saturday, you write a check and you send it to your utility company I think you're okay because come Monday, <laughs> was our, yeah. So, but you couldn't go into that checking account, and pull it out, but you can still write checks against it because it probably would be the, the government's not going to wait, you know, a week or two to cover those insured yeah. deposits. So it's just uh, again coming back to what is your individual needs. So if you use the ATM, you may have problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harrison, thank you very much. Uh, great information, especially this time when when people aren't sure what to do on the banking and the and the short term money. That, that's a great uh, great segment, and uh, we'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. There's our, uh, our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. He is a CFP. He is on a salary. He does not charge you know, or, or sell uh, products to charge commissions. He is a fee-based financial planner. If you want to sit down with a free consultation for him, give him a call at the office, 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. You can also contact him through email on the website, our website address is smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And Chase, I forgot when we were done before to promote, promote the newsletter uh, as well. Because if you're there, want to talk to Harrison. Also, the newsletter, that's where you get it. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle, you'll see the newsletter. Free newsletter goes out every Friday around 5 o'clock with good information on it, like we're talking about here on the show. All right, phone number is 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. As promised, let's go out to San Diego and speak with Dwayne. Dwayne, you're on the Smart Investor over at Chase. How can we help you? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, thanks for waiting for us. My question was about, you betcha. Um, my question was about United Healthcare stickers with UNH. I've had it for a few years. It's uh, done well for me. Seems to be awfully volatile, but that is what it is. I'm just considering whether to keep it uh, or liquidate some of it. Okay. And, and we'll go with the numbers here for you. You say liquidate some of it. What percent of your portfolio does uh, United Health make up? Uh, let me check here. Right now it's. Um, where is it? 
uh, about five percent. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say about five percent. You sound like a five percent guy. Okay, so 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 we're okay with that. And one thing I do want to point out too is that United Healthcare plans. I mean, these type of companies, insurance companies, are also getting, I think, a little bit of downdraft from the whole banking situation. So I think when Chase looks at the numbers, I think we'll see the stock is probably down. But we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. They are the health care plans industry. Uh, only 0.5 percent uh, float, 90 percent institutional owned. Uh, P.E. ratio a little bit high, 22.2 versus 21.6. Uh, price of sales, 1.4, also high compared to the industry at 0.7. Price to book value, 5.6 versus 3.1. Price to cash flow, 17 versus 12.1. Uh, peg ratio, 1.4 versus 2.4. That's positive, but all the valuation ratios are higher in the industry, which could tell us this company is a little bit too pricey. Uh, we do see that last year, earnings were up 17.1%. That did beat the industry growth at 16.8. Sales did climb by 12.9%, also above the industry at 10.8. So you are paying more uh, on the valuation ratios, but they appear to be delivering a little bit more as well. Uh, they pay a dividend of 1.4%. They use 29% of their earnings to pay that out, so that's okay. Look at the balance sheet. They got a current ratio 0.8 versus 0.6 for the industry. That's good. Uh, we see debt to equity 0.7 versus 0.8, also good. Net profit margin 6.3 versus 3.1. Return equity very good 25.9 versus 21. Uh, Chase, I'm kind of liking a little bit what I see here. I, I think I'm going to know the results, but but go ahead. Uh, what's it look like going forward? Yeah, so current price here for United Health Group is $469.50. The 52-week high is $558.10, and the low, well, that's $449.70. Year-to-date, it's down 11.1%. Uh, I was actually sur surprised to see this five-day return. It's actually up 2%. Um, mm. Reason, I, I think a lot of these companies that have investment portfolios and insurance companies, many times they take those insurance premiums and they, they buy bonds, buy different investments. I, again, think they're kind of getting beaten up as a group because, oh, they have bonds. They, they're going to get crushed. I, I don't yeah. think that's going to be the case for these insurance companies. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think there could be some opportunities. I was a little bit disappointed, though, and I'll tell you why. I go out to December 2024. I see estimated earnings per share of $28.32. Gives it a target sell price of $470.11. Four PEs out 16.6. Yeah. That's right exactly where we sell out at. I, I do think this company is fairly valued. I, yeah. It's not overpriced, but it's definitely not a value at this point, I wouldn't say. And, and kind of comparing, we won't tell the name of the company we have in our portfolio, but compared to the company that we have, that's in the similar similar category. Um, ours is, actually became a buy. There's mm -hmm. still about, I think, a 35 40% potential growth about on our 12 company. times future earnings yeah 12 times future earnings so united health based on what we're seeing here and what we have invested in i would say i would probably recommend to sell this and look at something trading at 10 12 times earnings so uh it could turn around go back up or it could go lower or it could be flat for a while so yeah. i i if you came to us and you were, were going to manage your money for you we'd say yeah we, we want to sell united health so i'm going to put a say sell it and it's done tremendous over the last three years, five years, ten years. But it, I, I do think they're going forward over the next ten years. I, I think a, a lot of the excitement and the, the outperformance is kind of in the past. All right, Dwayne. Thank you very much. I, yes, sir. I appreciate it very much. All right. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That does open the phone line, 833 288 0973 that's 833 
888-288-0973. Let's go to one of our emails here from Don. He says, uh, I am unable to call into your shows on Saturday morning. If you get the chance, could you go over the stock for Berkshire Hathaway or B shares? Now, I think that is, and we'll see him pull this up. I think it's B-R-K, uh, there it is, yeah, uh, there it is. And it comes up with a dot B is what it comes up. So, uh, and, and I've got to talk about this a little bit because we like Warren Buffett's philosophy. I do believe, we said this before, that more and more, I think he is not making the decisions, his two co-captains will call them or make the decisions because they, they do things that just don't make sense. Uh, they sold a big position they had in Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, it's not the same as it used to be years ago. It's a lot more trading, it seems like. Exactly, exactly. And they got a big position in, in Apple, which uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised on. I, I, I That does kind of worry me. But, but let's look at the numbers, how we look at it. They are in the industry of insurance diversified. Uh, only 0.5% flow, only 65.9% institutional owned. Uh, this surprises me. Uh, P.E. ratio, nothing versus 40.8. There's no P.E. ratio for the company. Uh, we do see price of sales, 2.8 versus 1.3. That is high. Price of tangible book value, 1.8 versus not material. Price of cash flow, 17.4 versus 11.7. And a pay going forward is 0.8. There's nothing there for the industry. Now, there's no earnings uh, that we see here from the company, which is strange, and sales are down 34%, the industry is down 35%. And again, we gotta remember this is Berkshire Hathaway, how they're, they're a management company, but they're an insurance company, so a lot of different things there. They do not pay a dividend. We do see that on the balance sheet, uh, well, again, they, they don't really have your normal banking, the normal balance sheet, it's more like a banking balance sheet, no current ratio, debt to equity is good, 0.3 versus 0.5. Net profit margin, negative 9.7 versus 3.8. And return equity, a negative 4.8 versus a negative 3.9. These numbers surprise me. Uh, but we got to remember that this is a really conglomerate of different things. But it's not exciting me at all that I'd want to be in this. Well, you got to remember, again, they, they own Geico. They yeah. own uh, a railroad company. I think it's uh, Burlington. Burlington Northern. Yeah. They uh, own Seas Candy. Candy. I mean, yeah. they, they have all these other businesses, businesses. in there. And, and the thing that, that I think is genius that Warren Buffett has done is years ago, he takes those insurance premiums and then he invests in equities. Yes. I mean, that's how that equity portfolio has grown to be so massive is because he's been taking those insurance premiums and investing them for years, which is, uh, I think, genius. Right. But the thing that I, I got to point out here, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Again, looking at the Berkshire Hathaway B shares, the current price $293.51, 52-week high $362.10, and the low $259.85. Year-to-date is down about 5%. But the reason I'm surprised is you look over the last three years, the stock's only up 56%. Over oh. the last five years, only up 41%. And even over the last 10 years, it's only up 185%. I say only because it hasn't outpaced the S&P. A lot of times you go, oh, I'll just buy Berkshire Hathaway. Right. I, I just, I think those days are again in the past. Especially I go out to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share of $18.18. What gives the target sell price of $301.79? It's again a forward multiple of about 16.1. There are only two analysts, so I do want to point that out. It's not a heavily followed stock. I think a lot of times people... Maybe don't want to break down all the different businesses. It'd be a very hard company to analyze. But I, I just, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's uh, an exciting buy at these levels. Is the best thing I could say. And I think the best days uh, have come and gone for Berkshire Hathaway. And again, I still believe 100 percent in the philosophy of Warren Buffett. Oh yeah. 
but those days are, are gone. I mean, what he did is, is not going to happen again. The philosophy remains, always will be good. But I think the new guys are trying to outperform him. I forget their names. Uh, Ted Wexler and Todd Combs or something. Oh, man, I what think. a good memory. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think they have a different philosophy. So I would not be buying, I, I would not put any money into Berkshire Hathaway, A or B. Um, well, and, and the funny thing is, you talk about those two guys. They don't run Berkshire Hathaway. They run the investment portfolio of Berkshire Hathaway. And then they're not, I don't think they're in line to be the CEO. <clears throat> They've talked about, I think, the Geico uh, president becoming CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. So, yeah. but, you know, that is a large part when your investment portfolio is that large. You got to make sure the investments are <laughs> right. doing well within it. <laughs> I, I think Geico is going to be fine. I know I like insurance companies, but I, I think Geico within that business may be a little bit overvalued. I think you could find other property and casualty insurers at a, at a better valuation than buying Berkshire Hathaway to get Geico. Yeah, and, and and I would say that we manage our portfolio more the way Warren Buffett used to do it years ago, not not the new way. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's worked out very well for us. Um, I, I, I think I can say this. Uh, I'm always concerned about the SEC. I think we can say, because we're not giving numbers, that we have done better than the Berkshire B shares. And I, I think it's safe to say that. So SEC, I, yeah, cause I didn't give me numbers. Uh, I, I don't know. I, yeah. We'll just move on. Let's just move on. Okay. Uh, SEC, if I said something I shouldn't have, I apologize, but I didn't give me numbers. <laughs> um, I would have put my money where I did. And again, if I didn't, why would I? No. Yeah, I would just, just buy Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, just buy Berkshire Hathaway, exactly. Alrighty, uh, let's go back to the phones here. We got some time here. Let's go down to Chula Vista and speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the Smart Investor Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yeah, I like your opinion of MTW. Okay, do you hold that or looking to buy that? I hold it. I just bought some more of it. Oh. I'd like to know what your opinion is. Okay, let's take a look at MPW. That is, uh, yeah. let's have it come up here. Um, Medical Property Trust is what it actually is. Right. There it is, yep. Symbol MPW there in the healthcare facilities area. Uh, float is high on the short, 26.2, institutional-owned, 84.6. Uh, P.E. ratio, very positive, 5.2 versus 34.7. And I've got to point out as well that this is a REIT, so it's more we look at the funds from uh, operations versus the P.E. ratio. But I think, Chase, you have that, yep. so Chelsea will give us that. I'm just going to look at that, the uh, P.E. ratios here, the normal numbers. Uh, price of sales, 3 versus 4.8. Uh, price of tangible book value, this is amazing, 0.5 versus 9.5. And what that means, that for all the tangible assets that this company holds or this REIT holds, which are hospitals and healthcare facilities, you will pay 50 cents on the dollar, which is just Crazy. Uh, price of cash flow, 6.3 versus 15.1. Peg ratio going forward, 1 versus 39, and the lower the better. Now, earnings per share over the last year were up 35.1%. The industry was down 21.3. Sales did decline by 0.1% when the industry was up 13.8. Their five-year estimated growth rate by the analysts is 7.1%, about half the industry at 14.6. You do now get a 15% yield on this company uh, because of the fall in the stock price where the payout ratio still based on earnings is only 77.3% versus the industry at 243. So this company's looking pretty good on that. Uh, we do see that the current ratio is 1.1. That's below the industry at two. 
debt to equity 1.2 versus one, I'm okay with that. Net profit margin, this kind of a strange number, I'm not sure why, but 58.5 versus 14.2, and return to equity is 10.5 versus 1.8. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so current price here for MPW is $7.73. 52 week high here, $21.63, and the low, $7.60. Year-to-date is down 28%, and over the last one year, it is down about 58%. And I, I, I want to say it again. Did you bring up the short level? Yes, I did. Uh, again, 26%. And I, at some point, believe these shorts that are on this stock, you've made money off right. this now. Congratulations. At what point do you start to cover? Yeah. Once you have 26% of those shares short, <laughs> they got to cover at some point. And they start to cover, they're going to push that stock price back up. And I think if they start to say, you know, we've made, you know, 70% right. off this short, let's get out of it and move on. I think if you can get that uncovering there, it, it would really help the stock as well. And just let me jump in there real quick. Unless this company is completely lying and falsifying statements, um, this, this, they're going to have to cover because it can't just keep going down because they got the earnings, they've got the assets, they, they've got everything there. Uh, these shorts are creating, I, I think they could be putting out some bad news, but uh, I'll let you continue. I just want to kind of jump in on that real quick. Yeah, and, and the, again, what we look at is the funds from operation, a better idea of cash flow, because uh, again, real estate companies, they charge a lot of depreciation. Well, yeah. depreciation is not going to impact their ability to pay dividends because you're, you know, you're not writing a check for depreciation every single month. So that's why we look at the FFO to get a good idea of the cash flow. Well, I go to December 2024, I see estimated FFO of $1.64. Actually gives us a target sell price of $27.22. I mean, the, the forward FFO ratio is about 4.7 times. I mean, that is just ludicrous. That is so inexpensive. The other thing I do want to point out is with these REITs, you got to be a little bit careful. You got to look at the accounting. There's something also called adjusted FFO. Mm -hmm. You want to look at that as well because what can happen is these companies do what they call straight lining rents because, you know, we just signed a lease last year for our office space. Yep. Well, we didn't pay rent for seven months yeah. because we got that as a concession. Well, now you're not getting that cash flow for seven months. So what they do is they straight line it. Mm -hmm. So you're not really getting the cash flow. So it really overstates the cash flow in the first seven months of our lease and understates our cash flow after that seven month period. So just kind of trying to understand the accounting of what they're looking at for the rents is also a very important thing to make sure they can pay out that dividend, make sure they can still have money to invest in the business as well. And I think too with this one is that because of the shorts, I think a lot of people are running scared and the shorts like it because the stock goes down even more. And then the banking situation didn't help because I'd heard a lot of REITs. Uh, but fundamentally, I mean, everything we see on this company, this is like a screaming buy. Yeah. Um, and I said, the only way this can, can fall apart is that if management is just making up these numbers and they're really uh, uh, you know, just falsifying all these financial statements. But I think the market cap, you said, is what? About $5 billion, I think is, it's, it's still a good size. And they own hospitals, surgical centers. I mean, it's the, it, they're not going out of business. It's not like oil to where the price of oil could fall. I mean, price of healthcare is actually going up and population getting older. I, I, I just cannot understand why this one is trading at this level. And so, I, I do believe as well that these REITs are getting hit hard by this financial situation because of concerns over maybe community banks shutting down and then yeah. having a harder time getting loans. I, I think, again, it's all overblown. People that has anything to do with financial right now is selling off and they're buying tech, which I think is silly. Right. And I think five months, six months from now, that's going to be a terrible decision. I think the financial related sectors like real estate could offer some really good opportunities. And the other thing I want to do point out though, is with these REITs, you got to understand how their balance sheet is kind of 
in their current situation is how much do they have in variable debt and how much do they have in debt coming due? Because yeah. interest rates are higher now. That is going to impact their cash flow because they're going to have higher interest payments. But if they have a low amount of variable debt and debt that's not coming due for two, three, four, five years and maybe even longer, that is the type of REIT that I want to own. And I think this could be one of those situations in 2024, you look back like, why did I not buy MPW at $7 a share? I could have locked in a 15% yield and now the stock is up 100%. That, that this could be one of your best investments ever. And the only thing I can see, and I'll say it one more time to make sure people understand this, is that if the company is flat out lying and falsifying statements, this will probably fold. And and I do want to say as well, the other crazy thing is, with that 15% yield, I, I don't foresee this happening. Let's say they cut the dividend in half. Yeah. It's still 7.5% <laughs> at this rate. And, and I mean, their cash flow, if they cut the dividend in half, they have more than enough cash flow to cover that dividend. So... Now they're they have way too much cash flow in my right. opinion. So it, it's it's crazy when I actually look at the numbers for this business, and I I do think it is again a, as Brent said a, a screaming buy here. Yeah, Jim, I think we said quite a bit about that for you. Did that help out? Yeah, yeah, that that that, that helped out considerably. I think one of, one of the problems with these REITs is that my understanding is with commercial loans the the loans reset after five years or so. But new interest rate, maybe that's what's pushing it down too. Well, that's where again you got to understand their balance sheet, see what type of loans yeah. that they have, and the other thing that a lot of these REITs have baked in is they have inflation adjustments to their renters yeah. as well. So that could kind of help offset some of the increase in interest rates and kind of maintain cash flow. So um, each REIT is not going to be the same. Right. You got to look at that REIT individually and, and make sure they are able to kind of weather those downturns and, and get through what is a difficult situation. And, and and that we believe is creating a great opportunity because all REITs are being like, oh, they all have these problems. So they're selling them, not looking, dwelling down into what are the loans of the, of the REIT? What are they really doing? What is their product and so forth? Uh, again, I think it's created a great buying opportunity on this on this uh, REIT. Yeah, they, they have a hospital in Pennsylvania, and uh, Pennsylvania is not uh, not paying their rent mm -hmm. consistently. So that's another issue with them. Yeah, and you got to look so at you, you got to look at their tenants one by one, and you know you're going to have yeah. a bad tenant from time to time. But looking at the tenants as a yeah. whole, you got to look at their cash flow, see how widespread that problem is when analyzing these REITs as well. And, right. and we know about that one in, in Pennsylvania, but the thing is, I don't pay their rent, someone else will come in and buy them, which did kind of happen, and they will pay the rent. So it takes time, but that's what I'm saying. I just don't see how this is a great business. It's not a dying business where it's like a uh, an old ATM machine, which ATM machines aren't as popular as they used to be. This this is something that's going to get better as go on. We need the hospitals. <laughs> we need the surgical centers. It's not a dying business that can be replaced by technology. Yeah, yeah that's a read I would not want ATM machines. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did a post on that, how they are going down. Yeah, there's <laughs> ATM machines out there. So, so Jim, I, I hope that helped out for you there. It did. Okay, well, thanks a lot, guys. All right, well, thanks for calling. Wow, we timed that, that pretty good. <laughs> That's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational person only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss some more detailed needs, your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Remember, we got that great newsletter there. You can read it in about three, four minutes. Great newsletter. You can get it for free at smartinvesting2000.com. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. Have a great day. We'll talk more next week right here on the Smart Investing Show.
truth there. 